Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Last week, I told you about my trip to the Network Science Conference in Buenos Aires, Argentina. But that was hardly the end of my February travels. After Buenos Aires, I didn't return home to Washington, D.C., but instead flew to the west coast of the United States to attend another conference at the University of California, Santa Cruz. The topic this time was the age-old question, what is life? This short episode of Strange New Worlds is dedicated to sharing highlights from my visit to UCSC with you. When I presented my work in Buenos Aires at the Network Science Conference, it's fair to say that I was quite the oddball. I was certainly the only space scientist at the entire conference, and many people there hadn't even heard of my field, astrobiology. That's a thing, folks would say to me. And I don't blame them. Astrobiology is a young field, a niche field, one that isn't really represented at most universities in the United States, much less abroad. Only a few select institutions have a formal astrobiology program, although the list is slowly growing. One of the newest institutions to initiate some kind of astrobiology consortium is UC Santa Cruz, which was my destination after Argentina. Now, one of the most defining characteristics of astrobiology is its interdisciplinary nature. People from all kinds of sciences, astrophysics to geobiology, organic chemistry to planetary science, all get to contribute. What's really unique about the UC Santa Cruz Astrobiology Initiative, however, is that it's not just about bridging scientific fields, it also extends into the humanities. This What is Life conference was actually dominated by folks from humanities departments. It was my first time at such a humanities-focused meeting. I was just one of four science-practicing astrobiologists there. If I felt a bit like a fish out of water at the Network Science Conference in Buenos Aires, this time I was a fish transwarp beamed from Earth's oceans to Kronos. But that didn't mean I didn't have fun. I had a blast. Let me tell you about a presentation that really caught my eye by a philosopher named Carol Cleland, who has written extensively on the question of what is life and argues that it is impossible to define. At least impossible at the moment, because we only have one example of life on Earth, and because it's impossible to generalize from a single instance of life to what the general universal properties of life must be. This is the so-called N equals 1 problem. I talked a little bit about this with Professor Mohammed Noor the last time that he was on the show, episode 141, titled Thinking Outside Earth's Box, where I referenced an analogy of Carol Cleland's. 
Imagine trying to define a mammal when you only know what a zebra is. What features of a zebra would you assume generalize to all mammals? Well, their stripes certainly stick out. Maybe, therefore, you'd think that all mammals should have stripes. But you'd be wrong. Maybe you think that all mammals should walk on four legs like zebras do. You'd also be wrong. What really defines a mammal is the fact that they have mammary glands. But you'd never come up with that just looking at zebras. After all, only half of all zebras have them. So how do we figure out what life is? The way to do it, Carol says, is to find more instances of life in the cosmos. Once n equals 2, n equals 5, n equals 47, then we can start to pull the universal qualities of life from the many examples that we have. But there seems to be a conundrum. How can we look for something that we can't even define? Will we recognize life if we don't even know what it is? Here again, Carol has an answer. Actually, more like a two-step plan issued by a philosopher. Step number one, give up your definitions of life. Carol tells us that life isn't the kind of thing that definitions are good for. Definitions, she says, are for human-made ideas only. For instance, we can define the captain of a starship to be the highest-ranking bridge officer on board. No amount of exploration, no amount of scientific discovery is going to change our minds about what a captain is. But life, on the other hand, is a natural kind. It's a thing that can and should be updated based on new discoveries. The structure of the atom, the laws of motion, what a disease is, these all have changed over time as science has progressed. These concepts are best encapsulated not by definitions, but by theories, scientific frameworks that make predictions, predictions that can be tested and also potentially overturned at any moment by new data. This is quite unlike our definition of a starship captain. Now, because life is a natural kind, not a human idea, a definition of life will likely just lead us astray, says Carol. Any definitions of life will force us to see only what we want to see, and nothing more. Let me give you an example. If we define life as, say, anything that uses DNA as a genetic polymer, we may only notice life that uses DNA as its genetic polymer. A lot of surveys of microbial communities these days rely on finding little bits of DNA in the environment and reading them out to know who lives there. But imagine a hypothetical life form that doesn't use DNA. By fixating ourselves on DNA and developing life detection technologies around that specific molecule, those quite alien organisms might slip past our detectors like grains of sand through our fingers. 
This concept of weird life right here on Earth that we currently don't know how to look for is something that Carol and her colleagues have coined the shadow biosphere. It's a very speculative and unproven idea, but it's one worth wondering about. Maybe the first aliens we'll find are actually right under our fingernails. So to sum up Carol's first step, it's to abandon our definitions of life and replace them with tentative criteria for life, flexible expectations of what life might be, always open to reinterpretation. Step number two is to look for anomalies. Now, anomalies, as every Star Trek fan knows, are phenomena that you encounter that do not match any of your expectations. They're the kind of puzzling things that make you scratch your head because, at first, based on everything that you know about the way the universe should work, you just can't explain them. They're baffling. Think of the DMA from Star Trek Discovery that massive dark matter anomaly that took Captain Burnham and her crew nearly the entire fourth season to figure out what it was and how to stop it from destroying planets. Another good anomaly is the anti-time anomaly from the finale of Star Trek The Next Generation, which posed a riddle so difficult to solve that it vexed Captain Picard until he realized that it was he who created it in the first place. In her talk at the What is Life conference, Carol reminded us to search for anomalies because scientists are not immune to disregarding them too hastily. To Carol, a lot of science is not actually about finding anomalies, but looking for trends that conform to our current theoretical notions. There are a lot of ideas out there, hypotheses that need proving. So researchers spend a lot of time and energy designing experiments or making observations to find evidence that falls right in line with what those hypotheses predict. And in building up that kind of theoretical legitimacy, we sometimes disregard outliers. Outliers that Carroll says we ought to treat with more respect. Why? Because anomalies are where the most radical new knowledge lies. Just think about our Star Trek examples. The dark matter anomaly led our heroes on the discovery beyond the edge of the Milky Way to encounter creatures of unprecedented power with characteristics unlike any life form we'd seen on Star Trek before. And the anti-time anomaly caused Picard to, as Q so eloquently put it, stop merely cataloging nebulae and expand his mind to chart the unknown possibilities of existence. I just love that quote. These are the brilliantly mind-blowing moments that we live for in Star Trek and in science. The history of a field that means so much to me, planetary science, is especially chock-full of anomalies that have upended our wildest expectations and taught us new things about the way that physics, chemistry, and geology work on different worlds. 
I mean, who ordered jets of water on Enceladus, clouds of sulfuric acid on Venus, or a heart-shaped glacier of nitrogen ice on Pluto? It might only be a matter of time before anomalies on other worlds also revolutionize our understanding of biology, about what life actually is. So for Carol, her message as a philosopher to the scientific community is that we need to design our explorations to make sure that we purposefully search for anomalies and design our analyses to make sure that we don't purposefully exclude them. And this is all because our present understanding of life in the universe is so preciously limited. We are so ill-informed about life out there that we are bound to be surprised and puzzled and baffled, and so we need to open our minds to these mysteries and let them guide the way. Now, I'm sure that a lot of these potentially biological anomalies may simply turn out to be nothing more than strange soil oxidants or weirdly shaped minerals. But if we never follow up on them, we'll never know. Other folks at the What is Life conference had equally interesting talks. Amit Shilo, a professor of classics from UC Santa Barbara, made a fascinating argument that ancient humans' cosmogenies, basically our creation myths, could serve as millennia-old previews for how we might relate to new forms of life in the cosmos. <laughs> now, it never occurred to me that ancient Greek mythology would have anything remotely to do with anything that I do. But... I found myself strangely resonating with Amit's words. People of antiquity saw sentient forces at work behind nearly every aspect of the natural world. So might studying ancient people's relationships to their deities help us spot truly alien life out there? It's a question worth pondering. David Shorter, a professor of world arts and culture at UCLA, reminded us that space exploration has roots in colonial attitudes of frontierism and manifest destiny. The search for quote-unquote techno-signatures, or signs of technology indicative of intelligent civilizations, is problematic, David argued, because it makes the assumption that technology is synonymous with intelligence. But what if true intelligence is leaving no trace by integrating yourself seamlessly into the rest of your planet's processes? Overall, the What is Life conference was one of the most unique meetings I've ever attended. I've been saying for years that the thing I love most about astrobiology is its interdisciplinarity. But up till now... I've just been playing around in the solar system of sciences, knowing nothing about the greater galaxy of the humanities. It's fair to say that thanks to this conference, my intellectual universe just got a whole lot bigger. Okay, that does it for this short episode on my wild adventures at the intersection of astrobiology, philosophy, and the humanities at UC Santa Cruz's What is Life conference. 
Thanks as always for listening to Strange New Worlds. I really appreciate all of the comments and discussion that these podcasts generate. So keep them coming. You can follow the show on Twitter at Science of Trek, myself at MikeY, M-I-Q-U-A-I. And I'll be back next time with an exciting interview with Purdue University planetary scientist and analog astronaut mission commander, Emily LaFleche. You don't want to miss this. Until then, see you out there.